Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. Chapter 4, Part 3 From this period I recovered my health so rapidly as to astonish my physicians. The bleeding nun appeared no more, and I was soon able to set out for Lindenburg. The baron received me with open arms. I confided to him the sequel of my adventure, and he was not a little pleased to find that his mansion would be no longer troubled with the phantom's quinquennial visits. I was sorry to perceive that absence had not weakened Doña Rodolfa's imprudent passion. In a private conversation which I had with her during my short stay at the castle, she renewed her attempts to persuade me to return her affection. Regarding her as the primary cause of all my sufferings, I entertained for her no other sentiment than disgust. The skeleton of Beatrice was found in the place which she had mentioned. This being all that I sought at Lindenburg, I hastened to quit the baron's domains, equally anxious to perform the obsequies of the murdered nun, and escape the importunity of a woman whom I detested. I departed, followed by Doña Rodolfa's menaces, that my contempt should not be long unpunished. I now bent my course towards Spain with all diligence. Lucas, with my baggage, had joined me during my abode at Lindenburg. I arrived in my native country without any accident, and immediately proceeded to my father's castle in Andalusia. The remains of Beatrice were deposited in the family vault, all due ceremonies performed, and the number of masses said which she had required. Nothing now hindered me from employing all my endeavors to discover the retreat of Agnes. The baroness had assured me that her niece had already taken the veil. This intelligence I suspected to have been forged by jealousy, and hoped to find my mistress still at liberty to accept my hand. I inquired after her family. I found that before her daughter could reach Madrid, Doña Inesilla was no more. You, my dear Lorenzo, were said to be abroad, but where I could not discover. Your father was in a distant province on a visit to the Duke de Medina, and as to Agnes, no one could or would inform me what was become of her. Theodore, according to promise, had returned to Strasbourg, where he found his grandfather dead and Marguerite in possession of his fortune. All her persuasions to remain with her were fruitless. He quitted her a second time and followed me to Madrid. He exerted himself to the utmost in forwarding my search, but our united endeavors were unattended by success. The retreat which concealed Agnes remained an impenetrable mystery, and I began to abandon all hopes of recovering her. 
About eight months ago, I was returning to my hotel in a melancholy humor, having passed the evening at the playhouse. The night was dark, and I was unaccompanied. Plunged in reflections which were far from being agreeable, I perceived not that three men had followed me from the theater, till, on turning into an unfrequented street, they all attacked me at the same time with the utmost fury. I sprang back a few paces, drew my sword, and threw my cloak over my left arm. The obscurity of the night was in my favor. For the most part, the blows of the assassins, being aimed at random, failed to touch me. I, at length, was fortunate enough to lay one of the adversaries at my feet. But before this, I had already received so many wounds, and was so warmly pressed, that my destruction would have been inevitable, had not the clashing of swords called a cavalier to my assistance. He ran towards me with his sword drawn, several domestics followed him with torches. His arrival made the combat equal, yet would not the bravos abandon their design till the servants were on the point of joining us. They then fled away, and we lost them in the obscurity. The stranger now addressed himself to me with politeness, and inquired whether I was wounded. Faint with the loss of blood, I could scarcely thank him for his seasonable aid and entreat him to let some of his servants convey me to the Hotel de las Cisternas. I no sooner mentioned the name than he professed himself an acquaintance of my father's, and declared that he would not permit my being transported to such a distance before my wounds had been examined. He added that his house was hard by, and begged me to accompany him thither. His manner was so earnest that I could not reject his offer, and, leaning upon his arm, a few minutes brought me to the porch of a magnificent hotel. On entering the house, an old gray-headed domestic came to welcome my conductor. He inquired when the duke, his master, meant to quit the country, and was answered that he would remain there yet some months. My deliverer then desired the family surgeon to be summoned without delay. His orders were obeyed. I was seated upon a sofa in a noble apartment, and my wounds being examined, they were declared to be very slight. The surgeon, however, advised me not to expose myself to the night air, and the stranger pressed me so earnestly to take a bed in his house that I consented to remain where I was for the present. Being now left alone with my deliverer, I took the opportunity of thanking him in more express terms than I had done hitherto, but he begged me to be silent upon the subject. I esteem myself happy, said he, in having had it in my power to render you this little service, and I shall think myself eternally obliged to my daughter for detaining me so late at the convent of St. Clair. The high esteem in which I have ever held the Marquise de las Cisternas, though accident has not permitted our being so intimate as I could wish, makes me rejoice in the opportunity of making his son's acquaintance. I am certain that my brother, in whose house you now are, will lament him not being at Madrid to receive you himself. But in the duke's absence I am master of the family, and may assure you in his name that everything in the Hotel de Medina is perfectly at your disposal. Conceive my surprise, Lorenzo, at discovering in the person of my preserver Don Gaston de Medina. It was only to be equaled by my secret satisfaction at the assurance that Agnes inhabited the convent of St. Clair. This latter sensation was not a little weakened, when, in answer to my seemingly indifferent questions, he told me that his daughter had really taken the veil. I suffered not my grief at this circumstance to take root in my mind. I flattered myself with the idea that my uncle's credit at the court of Rome 
would remove this obstacle, and that without difficulty I should obtain for my mistress a dispensation from her vows. Buoyed up with this hope, I calmed the uneasiness of my bosom, and I redoubled my endeavors to appear grateful for the attention and pleased with the society of Don Gaston. A domestic now entered the room, and informed me that the bravo whom I had wounded discovered some signs of life. I desired that he might be carried to my father's hotel, and said that as soon as he recovered his voice I would examine him respecting his reasons for attempting my life. I was answered that he was already able to speak, though with difficulty. Don Gaston's curiosity made him press me to interrogate the assassin in his presence, but this curiosity I was by no means inclined to gratify. One reason was that, doubting from whence the blow came, I was unwilling to place before Don Gaston's eyes the guilt of a sister. Another was that I feared to be recognized for Alfonso d'Alvarada, and precautions taken in consequence to keep me from the sight of Agnes. To avow my passion for his daughter, and endeavor to make him enter into my schemes, what I knew of Don Gaston's character convinced me would be an imprudent step. And, considering it to be essential that he should know me for no other than the Conde de las Cisternas, I was determined not to let him hear the Bravo's confession. I insinuated to him that, as I suspected a lady to be concerned in the business whose name might accidentally escape from the assassin, it was necessary for me to examine the man in private. Don Gaston's delicacy would not permit his urging the point any longer, and in consequence the bravo was conveyed to my hotel. The next morning I took leave of my host, who was to return to the duke on the same day. My wounds had been so trifling that, except being obliged to wear my arm in a sling for a short time, I felt no inconvenience from the night's adventure. The surgeon who examined the bravo's wound declared it to be mortal. He had just time to confess that he had been instigated to murder me by the revengeful Doña Rodolfa, and expired in a few minutes after. All my thoughts were now bent upon getting to the speech of my lovely nun. Theodore set himself to work, and for this time with better success. He attacked the gardener of St. Clair so forcibly with bribes and promises that the old man was entirely gained over to my interest, and it was settled that I should be introduced into the convent in the character of his assistant. The plan was put into execution without delay. Disguised in a common habit, and a black patch covering one of my eyes, I was presented to the lady prioress, who condescended to approve of the gardener's choice. I immediately entered upon my employment. Botany having been a favorite study with me, I was by no means at a loss in my new station. For some days I continued to work in the convent garden without meeting the object of my disguise. On the fourth morning, I was more successful. I heard the voice of Agnes, and was speeding towards the sound when the sight of the domina stopped me. I drew back with caution and concealed myself behind a thick clump of trees. The prioress advanced, and seated herself with Agnes on a bench at no great distance. I heard her, in an angry tone, blame her companion's continual melancholy. She told her that to weep the loss of any lover in her situation was a crime, but that to weep the loss of a faithless one was folly and absurdity in the extreme. Agnes replied in so low a voice that I could not distinguish her words, but I perceived that she used terms of gentleness and submission. The conversation was interrupted by the arrival of a young pensioner, who informed the domina 
that she was waited for in the parlor. The old lady rose, kissed the cheek of Agnes, and retired. The newcomer remained. Agnes spoke much to her in praise of somebody whom I could not make out. But her auditor seemed highly delighted and interested by the conversation. The nun showed her several letters. The other perused them with evident pleasure, obtained permission to copy them, and withdrew for that purpose to my great satisfaction. No sooner was she out of sight than I quitted my concealment. Fearing to alarm my lovely mistress, I drew near her gently, intending to discover myself by degrees. But who for a moment can deceive the eyes of love? She raised her head at my approach and recognized me in spite of my disguise at a single glance. She rose hastily from her seat with an exclamation of surprise and attempted to retire, but I followed her, detained her, and entreated to be heard. Persuaded of my falsehood, she refused to listen to me and ordered me positively to quit the garden. It was now my turn to refuse. I protested that, however dangerous might be the consequences, I would not leave her till she had heard my justification. I assured her that she had been deceived by the artifices of her relations, that I could convince her, beyond the power of doubt, that my passion had been pure and disinterested. And I asked her, what should induce me to seek her in the convent were I influenced by the selfish motives which my enemies had ascribed to me? My prayers, my arguments, and vows not to quit her till she had promised to listen to me, united to her fears lest the nuns should see me with her, to her natural curiosity, and to the affection which she still felt for me, in spite of my supposed desertion, at length prevailed. She told me that to grant my request at that moment was impossible, but she engaged to be in the same spot at eleven that night and to converse with me for the last time. Having obtained this promise, I released her hand, and she fled back with rapidity towards the convent. I communicated my success to my ally, the old gardener. He pointed out an hiding-place where I might shelter myself till night without fear of a discovery. Thither I betook myself at the hour when I ought to have retired with my supposed master, and waited impatiently for the appointed time. The chillness of the night was in my favor, since it kept the other nuns confined to their cells. Agnes alone was insensible of the inclemency of the air, and before eleven joined me at the spot which had witnessed our former interview. Secure from interruption, I related to her the true cause of my disappearing on the fatal fifth of May. She was evidently much affected by my narrative. When it was concluded, she confessed the injustice of her suspicions, and blamed herself for having taken the veil through despair at my ingratitude. But now it is too late to repine, she added. The die is thrown. I have pronounced my vows, and dedicated myself to the service of heaven. I am sensible how ill I am calculated for a convent. My disgust at a monastic life increases daily. Ennui and discontent are my constant companions, and I will not conceal from you that the passion which I formerly felt for one so near being my husband is not yet extinguished in my bosom, but we must part. Insuperable barriers divide us from each other, and on this side the grave we must never meet again. I now exerted myself to prove that our union was not so impossible as she seemed to think it. I vaunted to her the Cardinal Duke of Lerma's influence at the court of Rome. I assured her that I could easily obtain a dispensation from her vows, 
and I doubted not but Don Gaston would coincide with my views when informed of my real name and long attachment. Agnes replied that since I encouraged such a hope, I could know but little of her father. Liberal and kind in every other respect, superstition formed the only stain upon his character. Upon this head, he was inflexible. He sacrificed his dearest interests to his scruples, and would consider it an insult to suppose him capable of authorizing his daughter to break her vows to heaven. But suppose, said I, interrupting her, suppose that he should disapprove of our union. Let him remain ignorant of my proceedings till I have rescued you from the prison in which you are now confined. Once my wife, you are free from his authority. I need from him no pecuniary assistance, and when he sees his resentment to be unavailing, he will doubtless restore you to his favor. But let the worst happen. Should Don Gaston be irreconcilable, my relations will vie with each other in making you forget his loss, and you will find in my father a substitute for the parent of whom I shall deprive you. Don Ramon, replied Agnes in a firm and resolute voice, I love my father. He has treated me harshly in this one instance, but I have received from him in every other so many proofs of love that his affection is become necessary to my existence. Were I to quit the convent, he never would forgive me. Nor can I think that, on his deathbed, he would leave me his curse, without shuddering at the very idea. Besides, I am conscious myself that my vows are binding. Willfully did I contract my engagement with heaven. I cannot break it without a crime. Then banish from your mind the idea of our being ever united. I am devoted to religion, and however I may grieve at our separation, I would oppose obstacles myself to what I feel would render me guilty. I strove to overrule these ill-grounded scruples. We were still disputing upon the subject when the convent bell summoned the nuns to matins. Agnes was obliged to attend them, but she left me not till I had compelled her to promise that on the following night she would be at the same place at the same hour. These meetings continued for several weeks uninterrupted. And tis now, Lorenzo, that I must implore your indulgence. Reflect upon our situation, our youth, our long attachment. Weigh all the circumstances which attended our assignations, and you will confess the temptation to have been irresistible. You will even pardon me when I acknowledge that, in an unguarded moment, the honor of Agnes was sacrificed to my passion. Lorenzo's eyes sparkled with fury. A deep crimson spread itself over his face. He started from his seat and attempted to draw his sword. The Marquise was aware of his movement and caught his hand. He pressed it affectionately. My friend, my brother, hear me to the conclusion. Till then, restrain your passion, and be at least convinced that if what I have related is criminal, the blame must fall upon me and not upon your sister. Lorenzo suffered himself to be prevailed upon by Don Ramon's entreaties. He resumed his place and listened to the rest of the narrative with a gloomy and impatient countenance. The Marquise thus continued. Scarcely was the first burst of passion passed when Agnes, recovering herself, started from my arms with horror. She called me infamous seducer, loaded me with the bitterest reproaches, and beat her bosom in all the wildness of delirium. Ashamed of my imprudence, I with difficulty found words to excuse myself. I endeavored to console her. I threw myself at her feet 
and entreated her forgiveness. She forced her hand from me, which I had taken, and would have pressed to my lips. "'Touch me not!' she cried with a violence which terrified me. "'Monster of perfidy and ingratitude! How have I been deceived in you! I looked upon you as my friend, my protector. I trusted myself in your hands with confidence, and relying upon your honor, thought that mine ran no risk. And tis by you, whom I adored, that I am covered with infamy. Tis by you that I have been seduced into breaking my vows to God, that I am reduced to a level with the basest of my sex. Shame upon you, villain! You shall never see me more. She started from the bank on which she was seated. I endeavored to detain her, but she disengaged herself from me with violence and took refuge in the convent. I retired, filled with confusion and inquietude. The next morning I failed not, as usual, to appear in the garden, but Agnes was nowhere to be seen. At night I waited for her at the place where we generally met. I found no better success. Several days and nights passed away in the same manner. At length I saw my offended mistress cross the walk, on whose borders I was working. She was accompanied by the same young pensioner, on whose arm she seemed, from weakness, obliged to support herself. She looked upon me for a moment, but instantly turned her head away. I waited her return, but she passed on to the convent without paying any attention to me, or the penitent looks with which I implored her forgiveness. As soon as the nuns were retired, the old gardener joined me with a sorrowful air. Senor, said he, it grieves me to say that I can be no longer of use to you. The lady whom you used to meet has just assured me that, if I admitted you again into the garden, she would discover the whole business to the lady prioress. She bade me tell you also that your presence was an insult, and that, if you still possess the least respect for her, you will never attempt to see her more. Excuse me, then, for informing you that I can favor your disguise no longer. Should the prioress be acquainted with my conduct, she might not be contented with dismissing me her service. Out of revenge she might accuse me of having profaned the convent and caused me to be thrown into the prisons of the Inquisition. Fruitless were my attempts to conquer his resolution. He denied me all future entrance into the garden, and Agnes persevered in neither letting me see or hear from her. In about a fortnight after, a violent illness which had seized my father obliged me to set out for Andalusia. I hastened thither, and, as I imagined, found the Marquis at the point of death. Though on its first appearance his complaint was declared mortal, he lingered out several months, during which my attendance upon him in his malady, and the occupation of settling his affairs after his decease, permitted not my quitting Andalusia. Within these four days I returned to Madrid, and on arriving at my hotel, I there found this letter waiting for me. Here the Marquis unlocked a drawer of a cabinet. He took out a folded paper, which he presented to his auditor. Lorenzo opened it and recognized his sister's hand. The contents were as follows. Into what an abyss of misery have you plunged me? Ramon, you force me to become as criminal as yourself. I had resolved never to see you more, if possible, to forget you, if not, only to remember you with hate. A being for whom I already feel a mother's tenderness solicits me to pardon my seducer and apply to his love for the means of preservation. Ramon, 
Your child lives in my bosom. I tremble at the vengeance of the prioress. I tremble much for myself, yet more for the innocent creature whose existence depends upon mine. Both of us are lost, should my situation be discovered. Advise me, then, what steps to take, but seek not to see me. The gardener who undertakes to deliver this is dismissed, and we have nothing to hope from that quarter. The man engaged in his place is of incorruptible fidelity. The best means of conveying to me your answer is by concealing it under the great statue of St. Francis, which stands in the Capuchin Cathedral. Thither I go every Thursday to confession, and shall easily have an opportunity of securing your letter. I hear that you are now absent from Madrid. Need I entreat you to write the very moment of your return? I will not think it. Ah, Ramon, mine is a cruel situation. Deceived by my nearest relations, compelled to embrace a profession the duties of which I am ill-calculated to perform, conscious of the sanctity of those duties and seduced into violating them by one whom I least suspected of perfidy, I am now obliged by circumstances to choose between death and perjury. Woman's timidity and maternal affection permit me not to balance in the choice. I feel all the guilt into which I plunge myself when I yield to the plan which you before proposed to me. My poor father's death, which has taken place since we met, has removed one obstacle. He sleeps in his grave, and I no longer dread his anger. But from the anger of God, O oh Ramon, who shall shield me? Who can protect me against my conscience? against myself. I dare not dwell upon these thoughts. They will drive me mad. I have taken my resolution. Procure a dispensation from my vows. I am ready to fly with you. Write to me, my husband. Tell me that absence has not abated your love. Tell me that you will rescue from death your unborn child and its unhappy mother. I live in all the agonies of terror. Every eye which is fixed upon me seems to read my secret and my shame, and you are the cause of those agonies. Oh, when my heart first loved you, how little did it suspect you of making it feel such pangs! Agnes Having perused the letter, Lorenzo restored it in silence. The Marquise replaced it in the cabinet and then proceeded. Excessive was my joy at reading this intelligence, so earnestly desired, so little expected. My plan was soon arranged. When Don Gaston discovered to me his daughter's retreat, I entertained no doubt of her readiness to quit the convent. I had, therefore, entrusted the Cardinal Duke of Lerma with the whole affair, who immediately busied himself in obtaining the necessary bull. Fortunately, I had afterwards neglected to stop his proceedings. Not long since I received a letter from him stating that he expected daily to receive the order from the court of Rome. Upon this I would willingly have relied, but the cardinal wrote me word that I must find some means of conveying Agnes out of the convent unknown to the prioress. He doubted not but this latter would be much incensed by losing a person of such high rank from her society and consider the renunciation of Agnes as an insult to her house. He represented her as a woman of a violent and revengeful character, capable of proceeding to the greatest extremities. It was, therefore, to be feared lest, by confining Agnes in the convent, she should frustrate my hopes and render the Pope's mandate unavailing. 
Influenced by this consideration, I resolved to carry off my mistress and conceal her till the arrival of the expected bull in the Cardinal Duke's estate. He approved of my design and professed myself ready to give a shelter to the fugitive. I next caused the new gardener of St. Clair to be seized privately and confined in my hotel. By this means I became master of the key to the garden door, and I had now nothing more to do than prepare Agnes for the elopement. This was done by the letter which you saw me deliver this evening. I told her in it that I should be ready to receive her at twelve to-morrow night, that I had secured the key of the garden, and that she might depend upon a speedy release. You have now, Lorenzo, heard the whole of my long narrative. I have nothing to say in my excuse, save that my intentions towards your sister have been ever the most honorable, that it has always been and still is my design to make her my wife and that I trust, when you consider these circumstances, our youth and our attachment, you will not only forgive our momentary lapse from virtue, but will aid me in repairing my faults to Agnes, and securing a lawful title to her person and her heart. End of chapter 4, part 3 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista